Hello, and welcome to The Overtake. I'm your host, John Bozzella, President and CEO of the Alliance for Automotive Innovation. This podcast is about the automotive industry and the people, events, and policies that shape it. Today, we're kicking off an exciting new series exploring critical minerals, battery components, the battery supply chain, and the important role they play in the automotive industry as we transition to an electric future. For the first episode in this series, we're excited to welcome Abigail Wolf to the show. Abby is the Vice President of Critical Minerals Strategy at SAFE. SAFE was founded to bring together military and business leaders, including four-star retired military officers and Fortune 500 CEOs, to develop and advocate for energy and transportation policy that bolsters America's economic and national security. In her role, Abby leads SAFE's Center for Critical Mineral Strategy, ensuring that rare earth and critical mineral supply chains support America's economic, environmental, humanitarian, and national security priorities. Abby has also served as a senior science communicator at NASA and the public policy program director at the American Geosciences Institute prior to her time at SAFE. Which brings us to today's discussion. Whether you realize it or not, critical minerals play a key role in manufacturing the electric vehicles Americans drive every day. In particular, the production of EV batteries depends on minerals like lithium and cobalt. However, important questions remain about the domestic supply chain for these minerals, government policies designed to support onshoring, and the implications of seeding global leadership on critical mineral production. These are just a few of the questions we will explore today. Abby, welcome to The Overtake. Thanks very much, John. Happy to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. First, let's start with SAFE. Tell us a little bit about this organization, SAFE, who founded it, what's its mission? So SAFE is a nonpartisan, nonprofit, mission-driven organization based in Washington, D.C., We used to stand for Securing America's Future Energy, but we have since changed that to just be the acronym SAFE because our mission really is to end dangerous dependencies on everything that's needed for our transportation, energy, and defense sectors to make sure that, you know, as they continue in their everyday business, that they can make decisions that continue to support the United States foreign and military policies, reflect their interests and values, and continue to support American competitiveness. So Robbie Diamond started the organization back in the early 2000s, really in response to our over-reliance on unreliable actors for oil, especially the OPEC nations. We saw that, you know, every single major economic depression or war that we were brought into was preceded by a price spike or supply shock in the oil market. So we really wanted to make sure that we could insulate our transportation sector by transitioning to more diversified fuel sources and electrification and electrified vehicles really seemed to be the answer to that problem then. So we've been focused on this issue for a very long time. But in the meantime, as we've been advocating and pushing for this increased electrification, we realized that we might be inadvertently miring ourselves in a different critical dependency. This time, instead of, you know, Saudi Arabia for oil, it is now the Chinese Communist Party for Critical Minerals. And so they stood up the Center for Critical Mineral Strategy, which I lead, which focuses on everything from upstream all the way to what you focus on, John, uh, vehicles, 
to make sure that we can get these materials in a way that, as I said before, continue to reflect America's interests and values. Yes. So let's start with the minerals themselves. So you lead the critical mineral strategy focus for SAFE, as you mentioned. So tell us a little bit more about the minerals themselves. What are they and how are they used in automotive manufacturing and propulsion? So critical minerals, John, are actually defined in many different ways, but our U.S. Department of the Interior actually has our official definition for the United States. They are, you know, in a nutshell, classified as, and I'll put this in air quotes for the listeners, non-fuel critical mineral resources that are really key to some of our industries in manufacturing and technology, but are also very vulnerable to supply disruption. And the reason why I put non-fuel in air quotes is because uh, a layperson might not quite understand what that means. Essentially, we're not talking about coal or uranium, which is used for nuclear energy at this point. We're really talking about hard rock resources. But I might just sort of add in my own little qualification here that I think that that name can be misleading because it's safe. You know, we really see minerals as being the fuel of the future and that we are transitioning from, you know, this fossil fuel-based economy to a minerals-based economy. And so many of these minerals deemed critical that are quote-unquote non-fuel are actually the fuel that are going to be powering our electric vehicles, powering our clean energy technology, and are really powering a lot of our defense and just communications apparatuses as well. But when people today are talking about critical minerals for electric vehicles, John, they are, as you mentioned, mostly talking about the minerals found in the batteries. And that, for the most part, is what's found in the battery guts, if I can call them that. The cathode and the anode that make up the battery cell. And right now, while chemistries are expected to likely change, in the next 10 to 15 years at least, those predominant chemistries include minerals like lithium, nickel, cobalt, manganese, and graphite. And, you know, sort of the the first four of those are used in the cathode. The graphite is used in the anode. But there are a number of other different flavors of batteries that are also on the market. People like to talk about LFP batteries, which stands for, you know, lithium, iron, and phosphate batteries, which cuts out a lot of the nickel, cobalt, and manganese that are used in the previous chemistry that I mentioned. So there's really just a, an alphabet soup. If you remember from your high school chemistry class, it's a lot of the things on that periodic table of the elements that we're talking about. <laughs> And again, just to cover a little bit more, speaking of the periodic table, a little bit more of of minerals, critical minerals 101, perhaps. These are battery chemistries that are found in today's laptop computers and iPhones as well, right? So you're seeing similar chemistries and similar battery configurations being applied now to autos. And again, the purpose here is to create a battery that stores energy, right? So the energy is produced at a power plant or a wind farm or a solar array someplace else and vehicles plugged in and the electrons are transferred to this battery and the battery stores this energy with this chemistry until the vehicle needs it. Exactly. We're talking about similar chemistries, but in much larger quantities. And that's an important point here, right? Because scale, the scale of the industry is enormous. And so therefore the challenge we're facing about how we get them, where we get them, when we get them, and at what prices matters, correct? Exactly. Yeah. When you're talking about a battery, a lithium-ion battery, and a cell phone or a laptop, you're talking about amounts in on the order of grams. But when you're talking about something in an electric vehicle battery, you're talking about, you know, the 
many tens of kilograms. And so it is an order of magnitude much larger. And I think from my back of the napkin calculations would take something like 2,500 laptop batteries to make one electric vehicle battery to get the, the lithium that you needed for that or something. That's perfect. That's that's very helpful. And so where are we currently sourcing these minerals from? Where where around the world are they coming from? And and frankly, does that even matter? So the minerals right now are coming from all over the world, but there is a dangerous supply chain concentration still within the Chinese Communist Party just because of their control over minerals processing and also because they have made very strategic decisions to go out and invest in specific deposits around the world where they themselves do not possess a natural geologic advantage. For example, China has a very small percentage of cobalt reserves in the world, but they have gone out and have very strategic partnerships with cobalt mines in the Democratic Republic of Congo, which produces over two-thirds of our cobalt supply. And Chinese-owned companies are in control of 15 of the 19 largest cobalt mines in the DRC. And because of that, China also is able to then send that raw material to their facilities to process that raw material into usable compounds and goods. And that, John, really is the key part of this whole process. We often get very stuck in conversations over where to mine or mine or don't mine. And what I like to remind people is that it doesn't really matter where you dig up the rock if the rock eventually has to be sent to China to be processed into a usable compound and good. And so anywhere from 60 to 100 percent of every single battery material today is processed in China. And that gives them an incredible advantage in the entire mineral supply chain, because not only are they able to get that raw material because there's not really any place else to send it, but also the battery industry that we're really talking about today, they really appreciate the opportunity to co-locate with where those materials are being processed. And so because of that, China also controls approximately 70 percent of all cathode production and almost 90 percent of all anode production. So it really is, you know, this sort of tumble on domino effect from their ability to control these natural resources. Wow. Okay, so there's clearly a significant commercial impact for China, for example, to control the processing of these critical minerals. Are there other considerations from your perspective at SAFE in addition to commercial considerations or concerns, perhaps even as it relates to China having such a central role in the development of EV batteries? Absolutely. So we're not talking about the importance of mining and the importance of critical minerals for mining or critical minerals sake. Although I did study geology, and so it might be a bit blasphemous of me to say that. But the, the, the reason why we're talking about these things today is because of the importance of all of the downstream industries and sectors that rely on their ability to access those materials in an easy way. For example, industries in the United States were able to rise to supremacy. The United States was able to rise to supremacy during World War II because of its easy access to oil. And we see that as we're making this energy transition, the country or companies that are able to control easy access to the critical minerals will also be able to sort of lead this next industrial revolution into a minerals-based economy. So it's not just the materials, it's the innovation, it's the expertise, it's the IP that comes from our ability to easily access those materials. In addition to the commercial concerns you cited, 
I also hear you talking about a national security and an economic security imperative when it comes to the country's critical mineral strategy. Is that right? Absolutely. People often like to say, who cares if China cuts off our supply of cobalt? And to that, I always say, China is not going to cut off our supply of cobalt. As I've mentioned before, China already is completely dominant in the mineral processing sector. The United States does not process cobalt. And so, of course, they're not going to cut off our supply of cobalt. But what they might do, whether nefariously or not, is to say, you know what, United States, we in China are actually the largest market for electric vehicles right now. So I'm very sorry, but we cannot afford to send you the batteries that you need to support your industry. Instead, you know, what we might do is we'll send you a battery wrapped in a car. And then what happens to our key automotive sector in the United States, which contributes over a trillion dollars to our economy each year, which contributes more than 5%, either indirectly or directly to our GDP, and also supplies an incredibly highly skilled and innovative workforce that we desperately need to support our economy and our middle class. So as they're making these commitments to retool their facilities, as governments are making these commitments to decarbonize, we need to make sure that our key industries are not hollowed out in this transition. Fascinating. And to your point, it is important, clearly, that we maintain a cutting-edge manufacturing sector. And so you're suggesting that that could be at risk if we're not thoughtful about how we think about critical minerals and processing in the supply chain. So. What are we in the United States doing to support onshoring and what some are now calling friendshoring of the critical mineral supply chain? Yes, the the administration, Congress, really the whole world is focused on not only building up their domestic supply, but as you keenly noted, friendshoring or ally shoring, as we like to say as well. And it goes along with why we changed our name as an organization. We can't just be thinking about these issues alone because they're not just domestic issues. When you're talking about securing energy supply chains or securing manufacturing supply chains, you need to make sure that you're working with others to diversify those supply chains and also to make sure that if you're dealing with a non-competitive market actor, that you can work together to sort of counter those unfair advantages that a particular country might have by putting its thumb on the scale, so to speak. So the more that we're able to bring as many other countries, friends or strategic partners, allies or non-allies alike into the fold to help counter that anti-competitive behavior, the better off that we will be. And we see that it's very difficult to diversify supply chains right now because it's incredibly difficult to compete on cost. These are incredibly expensive industries. And so the U.S. government, through Congress and also through executive action, have been passing many bills and speaking with many different partners about how to diversify these chains. So, as I mentioned, incredibly expensive industries. So what companies are saying is that, you know, they need equity, they need debt, they need incentives. And so... First off, we have the bipartisan infrastructure law, which really provides a lot of that equity and debt that companies were looking for to get themselves off the ground. You have like six to seven billion dollars within the bipartisan infrastructure law for battery material processing, manufacturing and recycling grants. So that provides a really great starting place to kickstart some of these nascent industries in the United States. You also have billions of dollars of loan granting authority from the Department of Energy's Loan Programs Office, which is able to help maybe some companies that aren't just starting up but need that extra bit of financing to help them get on their way. 
And then finally, once you have companies that are on their way producing things, the Inflation Reduction Act has really power charged this whole thing. What the Inflation Reduction Act does is it provides that extra incentive. And so that is in Section 45X, the production tax credits, which provide anywhere from 10 percent for producing the constituent materials that go into batteries, also for electrode active materials. And then you have big tax credits also for battery production in the United States, anywhere from like $10 up through $45, depending if you're producing, you know, cells through to packs kind of a thing. And when you say $10 to $45, you mean per unit of storage, like per kilowatt hour, for example? Exactly. Yes. You know, this is fascinating when you look at it, right? Because those of us who have been in and around this industry for a while might suggest that this is a fairly substantial change of policy approach. You know, in other words, a broader look at tools to support private investment in developing these supply chains and developing this production. So first, would you agree with that? And then the second question I'd have is for every action, there's a reaction. So, so how do other automaking regions around the world look at the collection of bipartisan infrastructure legislation, the IRA, and the regulatory tools, the administrative tools you've described? What are the other automaking nations saying about these things? So uh, this is definitely a slightly different approach that the United States is taking. I think people are seeing the United States dipping its toe into what people call industrial policy and with various levels of disdain and admiration for, for these moves that are being taken by the U.S. Congress and the U.S. government. I think that there are various reasons that this is being done, but primarily I think it is so important that they are making these steps so that it, because, again, we need to make sure that U.S. industries are able to compete as the whole world is moving into this next industrial phase. We don't want to be stuck with the horse and buggy when everyone else is moving to a car. We don't want to be stuck with an old version of a car when everyone else is moving to this new autonomous connected version of a car. So I like to think of this as our Jetsons moment. And we have so many competing interests in the United States, but making sure that, you know, we have the frameworks in place so that we can compete on a level playing field, I think is important. Just a follow-up point on that. I, I think many people don't realize the extent to which we produce vehicles, not only for consumption here in the United States, but for export around the world. So what I hear in your argument is a desire for the industry to remain globally competitive. In other words, if we export on a good pre-pandemic year, something like 2 million units a year to countries around the world, that's probably, I don't know, five or six full assembly plants worth of production. We want to keep that production is what you're saying. Without a doubt. As I said, we don't exist in a vacuum. What policies are going on in the United States or even preferences in the United States are only part of the equation. And we need to make sure that our homegrown industries are globally competitive. So there are tools in the toolbox, so to speak, loans, grants, tax credits to support private investment and to support this shift. Clearly, automakers are also showing a lot of leadership. There's billions of dollars of investment and announcements being made or future investment. Um, How quickly can this transition happen in the United States? 
So I'm a bit of an optimist here, I think. Uh, it's maybe one of my faults, but I, I really think that while this can't happen overnight, it is something that we can achieve rather quickly. I think, you know, in the five to 10 year range. The biggest choke point right now is minerals processing, as I mentioned. But building a brand new mineral processing facility from scratch takes around three to five years. And to meet the requirements within the Inflation Reduction Act for the sourcing provisions within the 30D Clean Vehicle Tax Credit, which we haven't talked about quite yet, but it's that, that material. And, and I'll just for the listeners, it has to be starting once the draft guidance is issued, at least 40 percent of the value of your mined or processed mineral materials must come from the United States or a country with which the U.S. shares a free trade agreement or be recycled in North America. But so the caveat there is it's mined or processed, one or the other. It doesn't have to be both. So you can mine the material in a non-FTA country, process it in an FTA country, and that is a compliance stream, we believe. TBD, what the actual guidance will be in March when the IRS releases, you know, their, their draft guidance, actually. But so if we are able to mine in an FTA country, which I think we can't, Chile, for example, Australia, actually, better example. Australia is a top five producer for every single battery material except for graphite right now. But you know what is a top five producer? The number one, actually, uh, reserves for graphite are in Turkey. And so we have a relationship with Turkey. We could easily get that material from Turkey, process it in an FTA country, and that could be a compliance dream. The EU actually is the number two processor behind China for cobalt, manganese, and for nickel right now. So if you were able to mine that material in Australia, send it to the European Union where they already have existing processing capacity for those goods, it might not take as long as you think it might take. We might just have to ramp up that existing capacity. But at the same time, we want to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time and build up new capacity for processing in ways that is you know, cheaper, cleaner, more efficient, less energy intensive kind of a thing. But I, I, I really do see us being able to hit these targets a bit sooner than people might expect. Just to be clear on a couple of things. One is, you know, free trade agreements, FTA partners, right? We do have free trade agreements, as you said, that should provide or could provide a, a way forward. And yet the requirements themselves are fairly aggressive. These requirements, these content value requirements in the IRA provisions that you're describing, that 40% number you mentioned, we need to be there effectively by the end of the year. And so do you see a scenario where there is maybe a ramp down with regard to the availability of vehicles that qualify for federal tax credits today and then a ramp up as those content provisions are able to be complied with over time? Or do you think that they're reachable right from the get-go? I think that there are probably very few automakers, if any, that will be able to reach the requirements immediately from the get-go. But in that, I would say that, you know, most automakers are all in the same boat. There might be a couple that have been planning a bit more strategically in this sector, if I can name Tesla and General Motors, have sort of been out in front of these provisions a little bit more and diversifying their supply. GM building up a cathode manufacturing facility with POSCO up in Quebec and, you know, building up their Ultium cell facilities as well. But that being said, achieving the full credit might take a bit of time. And I was actually just going to say that while I paint a rosy picture for processing capacity, all of my mining friends, of course, like to point out to me that it takes at least 10 years or more to open up a new mine. 
But with that, our back of the napkin calculations at SAFE have been that at least through 2030, based on 2022 mine production within countries with which the U.S. shares a capital, capital letter, free trade agreement, because, of course, there's a lot of, you know, um, mental gymnastics going on right now about what exactly constitutes a free trade agreement right now. And happy to get into that as well. But our ability to reach, you know, the 40 percent threshold to meet IRA requirements for it to meet U.S. demand only. So, again, we're not talking about a global market, but those numbers for lithium are quite rosy. Through 2030, for nickel, we can also achieve them. And for cobalt, it is less likely that we'll be able to achieve them from the mining alone. So we'll really have to focus on ramping up processing capacity in FTA countries. But again, we're not starting from zero when we're talking about those things. For cobalt processing right now, actually, so the EU is number two. They have 15 percent. Canada is actually number three. They have over three percent of cobalt processing. And Japan is number four at just over two percent of processing. So we have some options and some good friends there where we could, uh, you know, help build up that capacity. Either if we don't or as we are building mining and processing capacity and developing the international relationships that you're describing, are there other ways to capture value here in the United States, you know, the value of these critical minerals? Are there other strategies? Of course. And I would be completely remiss if I did not mention recycling at all during this podcast Recycling is going to be a very essential way that we in the United States and in some of the other countries like the European Union that do not possess as large of natural reserves as some of these other countries like Canada and Australia do for these minerals to obtain those materials and keep them once they are within our borders. And so there are various conversations swirling around in policy circles right now. Once you have the materials, should we make sure that we can't ship those batteries outside of our borders so that we can keep those materials? I know that that gets very sensitive when you're talking about the secondary market for vehicles. And, you know, as a geologist, I won't hazard to go too far into that conversation because I'm not an expert there. But recycling will be a really, really imperative way for us to, you know, control those resources as well. So as we start to wrap up here, Abby, what is at stake here? As we think about the development of EV supply chain, mining, processing, the development of and the production of batteries, what are the stakes here for us as we go forward? So what we're really talking about is the innovation and expertise that flows from our ability to collect and obtain these raw material resources. As I said before, as we transition into this minerals-based economy, it's going to be the countries and the companies that are able to collect the intellectual property from fueling those feedback loops between, you know, the, the lab scale to the commercial scale. And that's something that we've really lost in the United States so far and haven't been able to continue to take advantage of. We have a very strong innovation in R&D sector, but we've forgotten what it takes to make that leap from innovation in R&D through to commercial scale and manufacturing. And because of that, we've enabled a lot of these other industrialized nations to leapfrog us in their ability to learn from what they're building on the factory floor. So 
as this transition is occurring, we need to make sure that the United States and that U.S. companies can lead in this regard and can also take advantage of those on the factory floor innovations that feed back into our research and innovation loops that are already quite strong. Well, Abby, thank you so much for being on The Overtake. It's been a fascinating conversation, and I really appreciate your taking the time to be here. It's been my pleasure, John. Thank you so much. For everyone else, thanks for joining us. Remember to like and follow the Alliance for Automotive Innovation on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, and subscribe to The Overtake wherever podcasts can be found. Until next time, thanks. Thanks.